1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Let us pray. O Lord, may this word live as your Holy Spirit fills us and you speak to us from the Bible. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin our exposition of the book of Ephesians today because it puts our focus upon God and it helps us focus on the heavenlies, a spiritual perspective that is beyond ourselves and yet a perspective that transforms our everyday life. Because we look not upon those things that are seen, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, but upon those things which are not seen. When life is challenging down here, we need a different perspective. It's like the farmer trying to plow a straight furrow to plant those corn seeds in. If he stares down at the dirt by his shoes or just looks at the dirt in front of the front wheels of the tractor, he will surely go wrong. He will plant a wavering and a quavering and a twisted furrow and it doesn't end up where it should on the other end of the field. But if on the one hand he looks at that fence post or that tree on the far side of the field, he will straight line it to the destination. And even better, if you take a more heavenly perspective like they do today, they use GPS satellites. You can't get any higher than that as far as human beings are concerned to guide the tractors across the field. That's how the majority of the fields in Sioux County are done these days. You need a heavenly perspective if you're going to get a straight line to heaven here on earth. If life is tough, you need direction in your family, your job, your retirement. Look up, not down. Look up with the guidance of Scripture, not with the impulses of your heart. This book of Ephesians, which one commentator calls the Alps of the New Testament, referring to the highest mountains in Europe, it starts us there in the heavenlies in verse Number three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Christ is the anchor of today's sermon. Christ is the center of this letter. The heavenly 
many places is not a self-directed contemplation of my personal destiny in the heavenlies, my perfect goal out there somewhere which allows me to escape the mundane requirements of morality and responsibility. It's not escapism. It's a return to God. There is a new paganism out there. Nothing is true. Everything is permitted. But in this view of paganism, there's no real heaven. There's no God that is really there. I, therefore, can live as I want. That's not the heavenlies that we're speaking of. We are looking at the heavenlies where Christ dwells, at the right hand of the Father. There can be a very man or woman-centered view of religion. It's Gnosticism. It's an above-the-earth, sort of six-foot-above-the-earth kind of spirituality. And then it doesn't really matter if I sleep around or get drunk or get high on pot. Just as long as I cover that irresponsibility with a veneer of excuse that, oh, I'm on my way to my spiritual journey. You see, the book of Ephesians introduces us into a culture that was pagan to the core with the temple of Diana, which is described in Genesis, uh, Acts chapter 19. <coughs> and this is a city that needed to be brought up short from its paganism, from its temple idolatry with temple prostitution. It is a look to heaven that will get us straight down on earth by God's grace. We see the heavenlies mentioned here in verse number 3. They're mentioned in verse 20 at the end of chapter 1. They're mentioned in chapter 2 and verse 6. You see, let's look at that one quickly. It says, He raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have a destiny to corporately, with union with Christ, to be seated in the heavenlies. And Look at the contrast with verse 1 in chapter 2. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. What a contrast. We were dead, but now we are made alive and we sit in the heavenlies. And it's a theme that goes on in chapter 10 of verse, uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, and then in chapter 6, verse 12. It's a phrase, heavenlies, used nowhere else in the New Testament. And it points to the fact that we are secure in Christ. We are brought home in Christ. We are justified in Christ. We are made holy in Christ. And so I wanted to just refer you to the insert. We're not going to be going through it in detail. But it is an insert I got from William Hendrickson in his good commentary on Ephesians. And it just tells us the quick overview. It's that word blessed, eulogitos, and the shortened version of it, E-U-L-O-G-E, <coughs> which provides a picture for us, an overview of the book, our eternal foundation in Christ, the universal scope of salvation. Not that everybody's saved, but it has a universal scope to Jew and Gentile. The lofty goal that God's wisdom would be know, made to known to the principalities and we filled with the fullness. The organic unity and growth in Christ in chapter 4. The glorious renewal where we put off and put on like Elder Ken <coughs> preached to us.
us several weeks ago. That renewal of our lives in the grace of God. And then finally, in chapter 6, the effective armor of God. <coughs> and so, this letter, which was written to the church in Ephesus is also thought to be a circular letter that goes wide. One reason for that is you have very few personal allusions. The only name given in it is Tychicus, and he carried the letter. His name had to be mentioned in the letter just to warrant that this letter that Tychicus was bringing was really from Paul. Oh, yeah, he's the one carrying it. This letter is legit. And so basically, this is a letter that went to Ephesus but also to the whole region, and thus he didn't overdo it with a lot of greetings. Many other letters have great greetings. It's a wonderful part of Paul's letters, but this one was designed for Ephesus and the surrounding region. And as we consider uh, Paul and the writer of it, if you look in chapter 1, verse 1, he emphasizes that he is an apostle by the will of God, which is a reference back to his conversion on the road to Damascus and his commission. That was an apostolic commission, and he alludes it to it here. <coughs> and he brings us to these wonderful, glorious truths about Christ and his church. And the spiritual defense of the saints. So let's consider first, verses 1 through 3, Christ the center of every blessing. Verses 4 and 5, Christ the center of God's choosing. And verses 4 to 7, Christ the center of God's saving. Verses 1 through 3, Christ the center of every blessing. When Paul declares that God is blessed, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, he declares that the perspective on life which works is the praise of God, declaring good words about God accompanied by loving service of God in the world. And it's based that he has given these blessings to us at the end of verse number three, by the former verse, former phrase, blessed be the God. We don't get blessings until God is blessed as we put him first in our life. This is a God-centered book. And these blessings are spiritual, not meaning that they're unrelated to our bodies. Our bodies are embodied souls. Our, 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 our bodies are spiritual bodies. Our bodies, are, our, our soul is an embodied soul. But it does mean that we've got to begin in our relationship with God. We've got to begin if we have a problem in our home or our job. If, if you've got a problem in your life, don't come to church just to fix that. Get your life straight with God. Learn of the Bible and what's going on here in the Revelation. And then as Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Spiritual blessing in the heavenly places does not deny an earthly impact, but it does deny that earthly advancement, earthly wealth, 
earthly success, earthly satisfaction is, is the primary goal of our life. It is not. And we must make sure that it always is taken a second place to our relationship with God. Spiritual blessing in the heavenly places elevates our attention from the valleys to the Alps and declares that as you think about God first and your relationship with him or your lack of it first, that you may then have all other things added unto you. It's like a man who wants to go to the Antarctic and he says, oh, well, the first thing I got to do, I want to go to the Antarctic. First thing I got to do, I got to get over to Dick's Sporting Good at Aviation Mall and see what they have in those, do they call them parkas? Yeah, yeah, that's why. I want a parka. I want a good, good tent that they can sell me at Dick's. Yeah, right. I want this high-tech equipment at Dick's Sporting Good. No, that's not how you start. You got to know the guide who's been there first, right? You got to get in relationship with people who have been in this third, you know, extreme camping environment. You got to get in touch with the one who may have been there already. It's not looking down at the weeds of Dick's Sporting Good. It's lifting up your eye to know who knows about Antarctica? How will I get there? And you know, as we consider that question, we need to consider it's Jesus that knows heaven. It says in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. If you want to get to know heaven, get to know Jesus. And if you want to get to know Jesus, worship him and hear from his word every week. Jesus is the center of every sermon. Jesus is the center of every uh, service. And how do you get to heaven? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus says in John chapter 3, it says here, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. If you want to get to heaven, you need to know the Savior who is there. The second point is that Christ is the center of God's choosing. If you take a look here in Ephesians chapter 3, Number one, and you look at verse four, you will, see, you will see there, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God's choice of us, his election of the individuals who will believe in God for salvation is an election before the foundation of the world that has always been associated with Christ. It is in him. The plan of salvation was always to glorify Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And salvation is not merely our fire insurance policy, which we take out now so we can avoid hellfire later. There is hellfire, but the focus is on the glory of God that God would be glorified in his salvation of us from hell fire. The doctrine of election teaches us 
that before any of us were born, in fact, before the foundation of the world, God chose for himself a people in Christ, a people associated with Jesus. And each person who believes was included in that number. What this means is that we never need to worry that God is not fair, that somehow I would repent of my sins, believe in Christ for my salvation, and get to judgment day and say, oops, oh, I wasn't on the list. I guess I'm not saved. No, you trust in Christ for your salvation. Your election was also in Christ. This is Christ's list. So we not, need not worry or consume ourselves with questions like, what if I'm not on the list? Is this even fair? Or what about that guy over there? The questions we are called to think about are, do I have a knowledge and interest in Christ? Do I seek his word to learn of the Christ who is really revealed in the Bible and not the one I'm making up in my head? Do I have an interest in him? Do I have a share of salvation, that means, by repentance and faith? I have a friend who always asks me, he always asks me, what's the good word? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. Acts 16, 31. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? None of us has any right or claim upon salvation. All of us are spiritually dead, as we read in Ephesians 2, verse 1. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. This is consistent with Genesis, which we've been preaching through. Genesis 2, 17. Eat of this tree and you shall surely die. Adam's guilt is upon us and the wages of our sin is death. Death is what we earn. It's what we got coming to us. You don't get paid for your job in the world. You're mowing somebody's lawn or you're uh, fixing somebody's contract or you're building this product and you don't get your wages. Well, you get a little upset. Guess what? Your wages of sin, what you got coming to you is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. None of us deserve life. But it is offered to us in Christ, and all who believe upon him shall be saved. Sometimes people get concerned about this teaching because they picture themselves like members of a crowd at MetLife Stadium down in the Meadowlands where the Giants and the Jets play. And some people think that it's like we Christians, we're in a crowd in a stadium, and we've all paid our entrance fee with our own money. And we get our ticket to get in. And then at the last minute, just before kickoff, God chooses some to stay in the stadium. And the rest get pulled out of their seats. And they go, you know, dig in the Meadowlands. And, you know, that's where they dump the bodies of the mafioso victims. And that's where they put the garbage. It's like Gehenna, okay? I'm getting around to it. It's the garbage dump of New Jersey. And it's just like Gehenna outside the gates of Jerusalem, which was the picture of hell. Well, basically people think, well, I'm in. And you're going to take me out? No. That's the wrong picture. Our wages deserve death. 
we are all on the highway to hell, as ACDC put it in their famous rock music song, if you want to call it a song. Highway to hell. That's where we're headed. Good people who are minding their P's and Q's and thinking they're going to deserve heaven by their good works. Also, people who are just going out of their ways to be reckless and worldly. People who think that they're minding their I's and S's of intersectionality. You know, we all have our versions of good works, right? For some people, it's like traditional morality. Other people, it's whatever the woke universe is telling us we've got to do to be good people. It's works, all of it. We're on that highway to hell. And if we get to hell, we deserve it according to the justice of God. But if God opens our ears to hear the call of Jesus and puts it in our heart to turn to God by his Holy Spirit and believe in Jesus, we are thankful to hear his call and believe. This is his choice. It is a choice also of unconditional election. If you look at 4b, it says that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. In other words, that's the goal of election. That's where we're headed. It's not the grounds of election. The grounds of election is not that we're pure and holy and therefore he chooses us. The ground of election is not that he looks down through history and sees that we believed and therefore he chooses us. Foreknowledge simply means he loves us. He loves us in an intimate way and he calls us and we come to him. He chose us, and that's why we believe. God did not choose us because we were holy. God chose us, as it says in the text here, to be holy and without blame before him in love. This is about Jesus. As Jesus said, if you turn with me to John, turn over, please, to John 6 and 37. John 6, verse 37, read, please, all that the Father gives me will come to me. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. The Father gives. That's his electing choice. He gives the people who are going to be saved. And you know what Jesus says? They will come. They will come to me. That's irresistible grace. The grace of God works to bring them. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. He will never cast out anyone who trusts in Jesus. He will never cast us out. We are eternally preserved and persevere. For I have come down from heaven. Remember I said, if you want to go to the Antarctic, find a guide who's been there. Well, he's the one who came down from heaven. He's the one to show us how to get to heaven. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, which was to die for us. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all he has given me, there's election. He's giving people to God. He's giving people to Christ. I should lose nothing. He will finish the job, but should raise him up at the last day. 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus puts it all together. He says that if he's given, I'm going to get him home. But he also says that <coughs> this is the will of the Father who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. That's our responsibility. We are called to believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Come to him. And it is for God's glory this is done. If you take a look back at Ephesians and chapter number 1, you see here it says, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. God is glorified in this view of salvation. God is glorified. It's not our choice that gets us saved. He says in Romans 9, 11, when Esau and Jacob were in the womb of Rebekah, as we'll study as we return to Genesis, long before either of them did anything, God chose Jacob. Why? For the children not being born, not having done good or evil, all right? They did nothing in the womb. Yet, that the purpose of God, according to election, may stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It's about him who calls. It's about glorifying God. We need this view from the Alps. We need a heavenly perspective that our life is not about preserving our choices, preserving our options, and glorifying our will or our works. It's that the purpose of God would stand and that it is to the praise of his glory, of his grace, his grace that he gives us this divine favor. So the third point, Christ, the center of God's saving. This saving is summarized here in these verses, and I've put some theological words on them in the sermon outline. First, we have this becoming holy and without blame. That's sanctification. Then we see this whole idea of, of, of adoption. We see that we are predestined to adoption, verse 5. And then we see justification. It says that we are made accepted in the beloved. Now, the logical order here is justification, adoption, and sanctification. We are first justified. We are accounted righteous before God when we put our trust in him. We are immediately brought into his family. And then over a lifetime, we are sanctified by faith according to his grace. But I will now treat these in the order that they come in the text. And consider first sanctification for holiness and without blame before him in love. Before Christ. Yes, we are sanctified indeed as he has chosen us in Christ. It's that relationship with Jesus. It's knowing his love that has the power to shake us from sin. It's knowing his love that what he did for us at the cross of Calvary. As our brother read on Wednesday night, 
1 Corinthians 6.18, flee sexual immorality. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought at a price. It was the cost of Christ's loving sacrifice at the cross. Christ bought us there, and therefore we owe him everything. It is our privilege to be called his younger brother. We love him because of what he did. It is that expulsive power of a new affection. We love Christ. In that red hot moment of, temp of temptation, we turn away from the lust. We turn away from the stealing. We turn away from the temptation. We turn not away to nothing. We turn away to Jesus who is the lover of our soul. It's this love which is powerful in verse 4, that we should be holy and without blame before him in his love for us and as we are given a love for him. Secondly, adoption. We are predestined to adoption. When God chooses us for salvation, it's not like he brings us into a courtroom and declares us not guilty and then we go off like O.J. Simpson and they say, oh, really, was he not guilty? No, we are declared not guilty. And it's a true not guilt. And we are brought into, in that very moment, that courtroom, which I do not deny it's a courtroom. He declares us not guilty. But it's immediately transformed into a banquet hall. It's a banquet of the feast of the Lamb in heaven. It's a banquet of the feast of the Lamb where we get to sit at that table as the bride of the groom. And we are accepted. We are given a seat at the table. So we stand before God and we are accepted at his table. We are given a great adoption to be brought into his family. You note here that it says that we are predestined to be adopted, which means that we have this uh, adoption by Jesus Christ to himself. You see, Jesus is the one that allows us to get into the family. It's like the bigger brother bringing the younger brother home and saying, Father, here's the one you picked, and I've cleansed him. And now he is your son. He is, she is your daughter. There's the adoption. If you're lonely, if you need a family, this church is an outpost of that kingdom of God's family. It's, it's a place where we get to be family together. Many people are looking for family in their life. They're, they're wandering around. Can I be part of your family? Can I be part of your family? And so... Some people try to join families at the cost of their holiness. Some gang members offer family, but you've got to kill somebody to get in the gang. So-called families are not families at all because they require us to do things that aren't right. But adoption by Jesus Christ leads us into a holy, dignified, warm relationships as you have in this church. And that family is on display here for all who need a place to belong. And so finally, we come to justification, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. 
in whom we have redemption through his blood. We saw last week that redemption is not paying off the devil. Redemption is satisfying the justice of God. There is a payment for sin. He says in the Old Testament, I shall by no means clear the guilty. Sin has to be paid. And it was paid in verse 7 by the blood of Christ. It's forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And it is in that grace that we have opportunity to stand before God as accepted ones. The word acceptance here in verse 6 is found also in the highly favored language of Mary when she was chosen to be favored to serve God in bearing the Christ child. It is a phrase that speaks to us of being declared not guilty and given a great responsibility. We are justified to stand and serve in Christ's kingdom. We are favored because God has chosen us and has delivered us. So as we conclude, I want to suggest to you that in the presence of the Alps, you recognize that they are big and we are small. They are big and we are small. Went to Glacier National Park and my breath was taken away about how big those mountains were, even compared to, if you can believe it, Yellowstone National Park. There was something about the, 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 just the whole scope of the whole place that just took my breath. Do you have a sense when you come into the presence of God that your breath is taken away, that he would love such a sinner as me and as you? God is big and dwells in the heavenlies, and we are small. This leads us to humility. As Charles Spurgeon put it, I believe that the doctrine of election, because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. You know, look, looking at the way I lived, he would never chose me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to him. It was for the praise of his glorious grace. Because he could never find any reason for choosing me. Why he would look upon me with that special love. It takes our breath away. He accepts me in the beloved. As we read from Thomas Watson, Christians, you who were vessels of election, were by nature as wicked as others, but God had compassion on you and plucked you as brands out of the fire. He stopped you in your course of sinning when you were marching to hell. You know, that highway to hell I was talking about. He turned you back to him by sincere repentance. Oh, here is the banner of love displayed over you. As it says in the book of Song of Solomon, he brings me to his banqueting table. His banner over me is love. Yes, this acceptance leads us to humility, but it leads us to confidence. Because when God is big, people are small. I don't have to quake in terms of my relationships. I will come into relationships with humility, but I do not have to fear man. I no longer believe in fearful humanity when I have a great and big sovereign God. If we cut God down to size, 
if we no longer believe in a sovereign God in whom we could trust, well then politicians and neighbors and bosses and athletic competitors become huge, intimidating, scary. And we live and quake at the next announcement from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But when our God is big, we have confidence to stand in his security. And that's the last thing, his hum the humility. We are confident in him because we have a big God and we are secure. As R.C. Sproul puts it, we are secure not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. It's his sovereignty that saves us from first to last. And that sovereignty is powerful. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. That's the view from the Alps. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your goodness and giving us salvation. Oh, Lord, let us humble ourselves beneath this message from your word, this word, these words from Ephesians. Let us humble ourselves and cling to you and know a confidence that you are big and you take care of us. We humble ourselves before you and we are secure in your hands. Let us believe. Those having never believed, may they believe this morning in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.